For those of you who are visiting with us this evening, each year our church embarks on a rather lengthy study of the confession of our church using the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, what we do is we read the Word of God and then we also read from the Heidelberg Catechism as it is uh, informed and teaches us the Word of God. And so we'll invite you not only this evening, if you're a guest and visitor, uh, to read the Word with us, but also to turn with us in the Catechism. And we do recite this uh, with one voice, and if you find it agreeable with your faith, and uh, if you find it agreeable with what's taught in the Word of God, I'll invite you to recite it with me. Uh, But first, before we turn in Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to turn in God's Word to Psalm 133. As we just sang, Psalm 133. And we're going to read God's Word this evening under the heading of The Blessing of Unity. The blessing of unity from Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. And then we'll also invite you to turn with me in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 21. Lord's Day 21, which can be found in the Forms and Prayers book here. Lord's Day 21 on page 222. Again, I'll read the question and we'll invite the congregation to respond in unison. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith, And of this community I am and always will be a living member. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Then question 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants and creates of Christ that I may never come into judgment. My most dear friends, there is a famous hymn which says, you may know the words, like a mighty army moves the church of moves, excuse me, the church of God, brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. 
all one body, we one in hope and doctrine, one in charity, onward Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Do you know these words? Yet, if you have been a part of any branch of the body of Christ, you know that we happily sing sing songs such as these, but sometimes we question their truthfulness. Are we not divided? Do we have one doctrine? Are we one body? Sadly, the community of the saints, like the world, is fractured too. This hymn reflects really the unity that we see in Psalm 133. The unity of those who live together as brothers. But how did this go for Israel? We're told in this psalm, in the title, you see it before verse 1 in your Bibles there, that it's a psalm of David. Of course, David was a great king and the kingdom thrived and flourished under him. But we would be remiss if we did not also notice that in the later years of David's reign, there was also great frustration. Great division. Great war. And it was no less than two generations later, after David, that his grandsons split the kingdom of Israel in two. The ten northern tribes following David's grandson Jeroboam with the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin remaining with Rehoboam. Major disunity in the life of David. In fact, disunity is all over the Bible. You can go all the way back to Jacob and his sons and don't we see disunity there between Rachel and Leah and their children? Let's put it this way. Disunity is all over the Bible and it's all over our churches. So much so, it causes us to throw up our hands and wonder, is unity even possible at all? Is there any semblance of unity in the church? We all have stories of disunity in our lives. I remember once while I was in Canada, I had an elder of mine who is from the Netherlands, and he told me that back in the split of major split in 1944 between the Liberated Church and what was called the Christian Reformed Church, I won't try to say the Dutch name because my Dutch is terrible, the Christian Reformed Church of the Netherlands, he said on one side of the road his family would come down this way, and if they were to meet, they would split apart. We all have stories of disunity. Is unity possible at all? Now we Reformed are not very well known for our unity, are we? But I want you to notice something so important this evening. The Heidelberg Catechism's answer to the question, is unity possible at all? is yes. Yes. The church can and should have unity. 
That's what Jesus prayed for in John 17. And we likewise should pray for unity, but it makes an oh-so-important point that unity is ours when we first have unity in Christ. And that if we have unity in Christ, we can have spiritual unity with one another. That's our theme for our time together this evening. The Lord bestows genuine unity on believers united by faith in Christ. The Lord bestows genuine unity on believers united by faith in Christ. I want to show you this from Psalm 133 in three points about unity. I want to show you the goodness of unity, the source of unity, and then in our bulletin it says the fruit, but I've changed that to the basis of unity. The the goodness, the source, and the basis of unity. Psalm 133, looking back at our Bibles, starts with this word, Behold! A marker which is to call our attention to the following statement, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. When David wrote the psalm, he starts with the word behold, not only because he wants to draw to our attention something that's true in theory, but something that was true to their eyes. Notice with me the title of Psalm 133. It's a song of ascents. Of David. Psalm 133 is a part of a mini-collection of psalms in the Psalter which begins with Psalm 120 and then runs all the way until Psalm 134. They are called Psalms of Ascent or Pilgrim Psalms because if you look at a map of Israel, you would see that Jerusalem is actually located on the top of a hill. On a mountain. And so the Jews would literally have to ascend and walk up an incline in order to get into the city of Jerusalem and enter her gates. The Bible also tells us that once per year, the Lord required of the Jews that they would come into Jerusalem to worship Him for the Passover. And so we're told that they would sing these songs. The Psalms of Ascent. While they ascended the mountain to meet with God in Jerusalem. Doesn't that put into context? I lift my eyes up to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who makes the heavens and the earth. Psalm 121. Or Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And so forth. The Psalms of Ascent actually give words to the faith of the Jews as they were journeying to Jerusalem to meet with their God. And it's the same in Psalm 133. 
Imagine with me this evening as the pilgrims are ascending into the, Jeru- into the city of Jerusalem, there would be people who traveled from various different places. All 12 tribes represented. Maybe people who weren't even Jewish pouring into the city of Jerusalem. People of different backgrounds. People of different interests. But they all came for one purpose. To praise God. Different. But together. Together. Because they love Yahweh. And don't you dare miss this evening how David describes the pilgrim travelers in Psalm 133. Brothers. They are brothers. The psalmist is teaching those walking into Jerusalem, if you have a common love for Yahweh, you are a family. Think about what David is saying here. That person who's from the northern section of Israel and speaks a different dialect than you, that's your brother. Or that woman from the southern portion of Judah who has a darker skin color than you, that's your sister. The poor family, the dysfunctional family, all these people are your family, whether they're rich or poor, young or old, your brothers, your sisters in Christ. And David says, When brothers dwell in unity, it is good. Such an important word in the Bible. In Hebrew, it literally means, or I should say, the word is tov. Tov. And it's the same word God used when He created the world. And we read in Genesis 1 and 2, it was good. It is perfect when brothers dwell in unity and it is pleasant when the family of God gets along. Now, Lord's Day 21 is an exposition of the Apostles' Creed's teaching about the Holy Catholic Church. And you may not have noticed this when we recited together the words of question 54, but it's making actually a point very similar to David's point here in Psalm 133. When it says in question 54, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? It's not actually talking about a church in particular. A physical building. Or one church's denominational office or their church as title. But when we confess in the Apostles' Creed the Catholic Church, we are confessing one Catholic Church. Not two churches or three churches or 15 churches or 50 churches. We are confessing one holy Catholic Church. That all believers 
who trust in Christ and embrace Him and become part of the church are one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one family. The Apostle Paul likewise makes this point in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we are members of the household of God. Now, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. For those of you who may not be acquainted with it, um, I'm telling you, the more you read it, the more you'll love it. And one of the things I really appreciate about question 54 is that it doesn't say that the one true church is the Reformed church. In fact, it doesn't give any title here. And this catechism is strongly Reformed. It's covenantal. But it doesn't restrict the preaching of the Gospel, and it doesn't restrict the means of grace to only our church. In fact, it seems to be very broad in its description that all Christians, irrespective of the name they might have, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's really muddle around in our hearts this evening. You can be Lutheran and be a brother or a sister in Christ. You can be a Baptist and be a brother and sister in Christ. You can be a Pentecostal and be a brother and sister in Christ. You can even be a Roman Catholic and be a brother and a sister in Christ. In fact, my best friend, who was here a few weeks ago, was raised and saved in a Roman Catholic church. God has His people in all places all around the globe. But it begs the question, what is the holy Catholic Church? And that's really what the question 54 is asking. What is the holy Catholic Church? And it doesn't say it's the Roman Catholic Church. It doesn't say it's the Reformed Church or the Presbyterian Church or the Baptist Church. It says the Holy Catholic Church is actually, in one word, the elect. God's people. Wherever they may be found. We see this. I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word out of the entire human race from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life. And united in true faith. That's the elect. God's people whom He chose from before the foundations of the world. That's what the catechism is saying is the Holy Catholic Church. Likewise, the Belgic Confession in Article 27 says that the Holy Catholic Church 
is a holy congregation and a gathering of all the true believers. And what it's really getting at is the heart of what the church really is. In Greek, the word for church is ekklesia. It literally means those called out. That the church, the true church, is those who are called from this world, from Satan, to God in Christ. That's the church. It transcends borders. It transcends our church walls. It transcends denominational boundaries. It's the church as God sees it. The people that He's been calling from the beginning of the world, all over the world, to Christ. To Christ. So if the church is invisible, and the church is something that, as we said, transcends all these things, one of the questions we may have is, is the church even necessary? It's common to hear people say, I don't need the church. I am the church. We can have church at home. We can have church just in the forest, in nature. We don't need the church anymore. Is that what the catechism is saying here? I want you to notice from Psalm 133 and the catechism what's being stressed here. is not a called out of the world to nothing. Not a being called out or from Satan just to prayer. But look at what the catechism says. We are called into a community chosen for eternal life. So this church that exists here in Caledonia... It's not the whole church. It's not the invisible church. But it is the community that God has given here. And what a blessing the church is. What a source of strength the church is. It is, as David says in Psalm 133, good to be a part of the church. In fact, Article 28 of the Belgian Confession says there's even no salvation apart from the church. And what it means by that is that this is the place where people come to know God. Where the Gospel is preached. We saw this morning, baptism is administered. This is the place where God's blessing dwells. Now, why does God's blessing dwell here? I want you to see the source of unity. Let's go back to Psalm 133, the source of unity. The psalmist gives us two pictures of what unity looks like. We see in verses 2 and the first half of verse 3, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. And these two pictures illustrate one thought. Unity is a blessing 
from God. It's a blessing from God. Notice that first picture, the oil it speaks about. Now since Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the question of the Old Testament has been, how do we get back into the presence of God again? That's really what the first five books of of the Bible are about. How do we get back into the presence of God? And the ordination of Aaron was the answer to that question. Back in Leviticus 8, God answered the question, how can sinful Israel be in the presence of God again? He said, through my chosen mediator. See, the ordination and installation of Aaron as the priest was a foundational moment. Because as he stood there and the oil was poured upon his head, he was anointed to make offerings for the people. To stand in the presence of God for the people. That they could come to God for the people. Do you remember what it says happens after Aaron is anointed? and installed into his office. It says that he made the first offerings ever offered in the Bible. And it says he lifted up his hands and he blessed the people. May God bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift up his face upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. What was being declared in Aaron's ordination is that God has accepted the sacrifice. That people could come into the presence of God again. And we read in Leviticus 9, verse 24, that God came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. I think when David in Psalm 133 is talking about the oil running down Aaron, he is speaking not only of the qualities of oil, but he is speaking about how Aaron's work as the high priest of God restored unity with his Old Testament people. Unity comes from above. It is God's blessing upon a church. In fact, in the Hebrew, I translated this for you. I think you could, or I shouldn't say I think. This is how we should translate this in verse 2. It says, running down the beard of Aaron, running down Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robes. You see that emphasis on movement. That unity isn't something that wells up within us, but something that needs to come down from heaven. Like Aaron and the oil that poured down him. So our catechism picks up on this idea. In question 55 about the communion of the saints. And notice what it says. First, first in order and first in importance, that believers one and all as members of Christ the Lord have communion with Him. 
and share in all His treasures and gifts. That the most important thing when we consider the communion of the saints is if we have communion with Christ. It's of second importance that we get along and have communion with one another, though it is important. But the second flows from the first. Love for one another and union with one another flows from and comes from a love and union with Jesus. What this means is that if we have a heart full of love for Christ, we will have a heart full of love for one another. So if we find ourselves struggling to love each other, finding ourselves angry, churches with disunity, the first thing we should check is not everyone else, but our own hearts, isn't it? We need to check if our fellowship with Him is neglected. We need to check if our love for Him is being neglected. As one of my favorite commentators on the catechism says, he says the communion of saints cries out for living communion with Christ. Unity is a gift from above. A gift that comes to us in Jesus' love. There's a second word picture that illustrates this source of unity. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Mount Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. Mount Hermon is a mountain located about, it's about 9,000 feet tall and located 120 miles north of Jerusalem. And because it has a more northern climate, and of course it's much taller than Jerusalem, it's famous for its moist air, its rain. And it'll even snow on Mount Hermon in the colder season. It's a very lush picture. Now obviously do does not travel 120 miles through the hot Palestinian sun. But again, the psalmist is hammering the point. God is the source of unity. And sometimes unity feels impossible. But the picture we're given in verse 3 is that God can even do the impossible. Now it's time to touch on this evening a delicate matter. Is not the unity of the church just an ideal, but in reality it's been destroyed? There are so many denominations and churches So many splits. What do we do with disunity? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to acknowledge the fact that Christendom is divided and split. And that this should be a source of grief for us. Because it is sin 
that brings about division. Think about it. If there was no sin, would the church be divided? What's your answer? There's the answer. Unity is something we are called to pray for. It's something Paul tells us to maintain in Ephesians 4, verse 3. But let's just admit that it's not something that we're able to achieve now. But I want to give you a message of hope this evening. Because this unity, or this disunity, I should say, will not last forever. Think about it like this. I'd like to give you an example this evening. When brothers and sisters squabble and fight, and they don't get along. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. It doesn't change the fact that you are family, does it? You can ignore each other and act like you don't want to see each other, but as we say, blood is thicker than water. Then in the time of need, we find a way to be there for each other. So it is with the body of Christ. The quarreling and the disagreements are not okay. But Satan will not win the war. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against her. Though unity is not our present reality, And that should grieve us. And we should pray for unity and do everything we can to maintain and restore unity in this earth. We know that it is not our present reality, but it is our future reality in Christ. Jesus said in John 17, in just a few moments before He would give up His life, This is his high priestly prayer. He said these words, his final prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. On that last day, there will be no jokes about be quiet because they don't know there's anybody else here. On that last day, there will be no more division. There will be no more disunity but the body of Christ will be whole and complete again. This doesn't mean we have an excuse for our sin, our quarreling and our squabbling, but it does mean that we have hope in our quarreling and our squabbling. My friends, also notice from the catechism here this evening, 
that in Christ, when we have communion with Christ, He makes us sharers of all His treasures and His gifts. And that each one of us is called to be a member not only of the invisible church, the elect church, but also called to be members of our local churches. And every single one of us has gifts and a calling. And every single one of us then is called to use those gifts to God's service. Even if the only thing you feel that you're good at is spreading mulch on the garden, use it for God's glory. Bouncing a baby on your knee, use it for God's glory. Cleaning the carpet, washing the windows, whatever it may be, as low and as menial as it may be, it's been given to you from Christ. Use your gifts in the communion of the saints. Well, let's turn finally to the basis of unity this evening. We've seen that unity is a good thing. Something that the church is called to strive for and maintain. Now we've seen that unity as a source comes from God. Now the question is, how do we do it? Before we tackle that subject, how we do the unity... We need to deal with a logistical matter. When we look at Lord's Day 21, it can sometimes be the center of debate and frustration because we're not sure how to handle question 56. Question 54 is about the Holy Catholic Church. Question 55 is about the communion of the saints. And then seemingly out of left field comes this statement about the forgiveness of sins. What's even weirder and perplexing is that the Catechism will actually later outline in fuller detail Lord's Day 23 and Lord's Day 51 forgiveness of sins again. Which has caused many people, including myself, to ask the question, what is this doing here? What is it doing here? And I really had to wrestle with that. And I came upon this quote which oh so helped me from Fred Kluster who put it this way. He says, the Holy Catholic Church is the communion of saints only because of the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen. The Holy Catholic Church is the communion of saints only because of the forgiveness of sins. In other words, question 56 is included in Lord's Day 21 because this is what the church is all about. This is the core of our message. This is the heart of the Gospel. That God forgives sins. And isn't this exactly what David says in Psalm 133? For there, where is there? The sanctuary, the tabernacle, where God is, the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. It's in the sanctuary where the sacrifices were made. It was in the sanctuary where God proclaimed forgiveness. It was in the sanctuary God grants eternal life for those who believe. So it is with the church. We declare every Sunday, at least we should, the sacrifice has been paid and your sins are forgiven.
Just to illustrate this quickly, Psalm 73, Asaph, when he has his crisis of faith, he's looking at the evil men and the institutions of the world. It says he almost gives up his faith until I went into the sanctuary of God. He saw the sacrifices, reminded of his forgiveness of sins, and he was reminded that with God there is salvation. May this ever be the case of the church. That we hear every Sunday, time and time again, and we never get sick of it, that I believe because of Christ's satisfaction, God will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by His grace, God grants to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. The instructor is reminding us that the good news of the Gospel must be in this place. Because forgiveness is the sinner's greatest need. So we shouldn't be surprised when John the Baptist comes preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. And when Jesus comes and tells people to repent and believe in the Gospel, and that after His resurrection, He told them that the day was coming when repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations, and that before He ascended into heaven, He gave them this commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. The message that Christ gave the church is the forgiveness of sins. In other words, the message Christ gave the church is unity with God by His sacrifice. Isn't the application so clear, my friends? If God would send His Son to be our sacrifice, so that He would have unity with you and I. Can we not have unity with one another? Should we not strive for unity with one another? Of course, there are times when separation is right. We know that Paul and Barnabas even needed to separate for a time. But unity is the goal of the Gospel. Sinful man, holy God, reunited in Christ. And we're called to reflect that unity even here. Unity is the goal. My friends, we may not have union on earth, or at least as much as we'd like to, but we can have union with God even right now. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you trusted in Christ this evening? Is this true for you that I believe because of Christ's satisfaction, God will no longer remember my sins? If not, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait a moment longer. Run to Christ. Find the forgiveness of your sins. Have unity with God. Have unity with the saints. 
and have unity with the church. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we do give you thanks for the words that you have given us in the Bible, that unity is a good thing. Something that due to our sinful nature we cannot attain to by ourselves, but you in your mercy have given us your Son. So that we can have union together. And union, most importantly, with you. We thank you for that and we pray that this reality would be in our hearts this evening. Bless us with that unity with Jesus and each other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.